If you could begin making your way back to your seats, and as you do, grab your Bibles, that would be good. Head on over to Psalm 121. That might seem a little counterintuitive because we began a few weeks ago in Genesis, and we're right now in the midst of studying Genesis 1, 2, and 3, but this morning we're going to be in Psalm 121 because here's the big idea and this is what has been trying this is what I've been trying to accomplish with us over the last several weeks before we really begin to step through the actual days of creation and that'll happen in the beginning of October. You'll remember if you were here a couple weeks ago that that morning that all of us left with our voices exhausted because we read every single passage in the entire Bible that references Anything having to do with the creation week, Genesis 1, 2, and 3, that ended up being some 320 verses showing up in over 162 different passages, and all we did that morning was just read. And there was two big ideas that I think emerged out of that morning, and they were the ideas and the truths that I wanted us to just feel the weight of more than anything There is zero confusion on the part of God as to what he did in Genesis. Consistently from beginning to end, God says and reveals about himself that he is creator. But then the biblical authors themselves have zero confusion about what God did as well. And so you have passages in such as 1 Corinthians 15 where the Apostle Paul talks about Adam and Christ in the same set of verses. And so if we say, well, Adam's not real true, how can we consistently go, well, but that Jesus guy, we'll take him when he writes in the same set of verses about both of them. And I just wanted us to feel the weight of that, to feel the weight of the biblical evidence about creation that the Bible says for itself. Last week, then, we went to Genesis 1, And John 1, and we asked ourselves the question, who actually is the agent of creation? What does the Bible reveal about this God and who he is about his work as creator? And we saw some things emerge then out of Genesis 1, 1 and 2. The very beginning seeds of the doctrine of the Trinity are there. They get further developed and expanded as revelation progressively unfolds as God continues to reveal more things about himself to his people. And then we spent some time in John 1 verses 1 to 3 and we saw here essentially the exact same truths we saw in Genesis 1 verses 1 and 2. But now we have a name and it's the name Word and we understand from the rest of John 1 that that's Jesus and That even gets further clarified as the New Testament is developed. But there you have, in the beginning, existing before creation was God. The uncaused cause, the one who existed before anything else, has always eternally pre-existed. And he did something, we're told that he created And there's intelligence, and we can see this this God, this word, as John would use, God, as Moses wrote in Genesis 1, has intelligence, created the heavens and the earth. There's creativity expressed and understood about this God. There's power on display. There's also order. And one of the big questions I tried to have us consider last week at the very end was just the idea that chaos never leads to order. 
Even in our world today and what we experience, you do not have order coming from chaos. The cars that we drove here this morning did not begin as a hunk of parts just laid in the middle of the shop room floor or the production room floor that X number of years later just magically put themselves together. No, there were engineers and there's production managers and production workers and all sorts of people all down the production line that Henry Ford developed and was able to make really, really profitable that led to our cars coming off the assembly line and then us eventually purchasing them. There's design, there's intelligence, there's order. Chaos never leads to order. We experience that every day of our lives. We, you have the word... The word was with God in the sense that he was unique, but we're also told the word was God in the sense that there is unity. And here, while John 1, 1 to 3 doesn't use the word Trinity, you again have further revelation about God existing as someone who does not fit normal categories. In Genesis 1, verses 1 and 2, you have God creating and the Spirit of God hovering over the formless and void waters of the earth. Here in Genesis, or in John 1, 1 to 3, you have the word being with God, but the word being equal to God, God doesn't fit our normal categories. And what I want us to do this morning is I want us to just consider how a big God is really good for little people. And that's another one of this, these big themes that the Bible gives to us from beginning to end Because the Bible consistently and those within that are writing the Bible and the characters that we see and even God's interaction with his people throughout the Bible consistently puts on repeat this truth that a big God, a creator God is actually really good for little people. And I want us to consider that and Psalm 121 perhaps is one of the more concise places that we could consider and understand that truth. But before we get there, I just want to show you four big themes before we get to Psalm 121. And they're the same big idea, but we see some nuance there. The first is, is that God as creator is the one we must tremble before and to whom we must answer. And God says to his people, in Jeremiah 5.22, do you not fear me, declares the Lord? Do you not tremble before me? I place the sand as a barrier or boundary for the sea, a perpetual barrier that it cannot pass. Though the waves toss, they cannot prevail. Though they roar, they cannot pass over it. This is one of the reasons I love to go to the beach. I love to stand there at the water's edge. Usually it's Atlantic that we're on, so I look over to London can't see it, but I looked that direction, and I'm just reminded of the immensity of God. The vastness of the ocean, but then also the precision. And every year when I go to the beach, one of the first things I do when I get there is I get my phone and I look up the tide tables so I know where I need to put my tent and when it's going to be good to body surf. Because there's a precision and an order that people are able to observe. And brilliant men and women have found a way to plot and plan and forecast out in great detail and accuracy for like an entire calendar year. But it goes back to this idea that that order came from a creator. Because it doesn't ever come from chaos. God, God, as creator, is the one whom we must tremble before. 
and to whom we must answer. Secondly, God as creator is the one in whom we find true security, rest, and peace. David says, when I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him? And the son of man that you would care for him. David's looking up at the night sky and he's seeing heavenly bodies, celestial bodies, the moon, the stars. And he's overwhelmed by what he's able to see. And he just says, who's man that you would care for him when all of this is just the works of your fingers? But it's in God as creator that we find true rest, security, and peace. God as creator gives his people boldness for Christ-centered witness. I'm always fascinated by this. Peter and John get arrested at the beginning of Acts 4 because I believe it's at the end of Acts 3. They heal a guy who's outside the temple. Then they go to Solomon's portico and they start preaching about Jesus. The religious rulers come in. They arrest them. The guys spend a night in jail. They show up before the, the, the council, the trial, if you will, the next day. And they, they say, hey, how did you heal that guy? And they're like, well, it's in the name of Jesus that we healed that guy. And they kind of grumbled back and forth with them. And they commanded them to no longer speak of the name of Jesus again. And Peter and John just go, look, you guys are going to have to do what you got to have to do. We cannot but obey God and talk about Jesus. And so they let him go. And Peter and John go find their friends who were in a house at that point, just hanging out, waiting, wondering perhaps, praying about what Peter and John were enduring and going through. And then they all get it. And when they heard the report that Peter and John gave, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made heaven and the earth, the sea and everything in them. If we skip ahead to verse 29, then we see what they specifically prayed for. Look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with boldness. Their prayer began and was grounded in the truth that God was the creator of heaven and earth. And what they request is not safety. They don't request to not be arrested again. They don't request to be somehow shown favor from the government. They just ask for boldness. The government's laid their cards down on the table. You're not allowed to preach and talk about the name of Jesus. And Peter and John said, you guys are going to have to do what you have to do. And then they get together and they pray for boldness. And they do so because of and to the God who is the sovereign Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. Lastly, God as creator gives his people security in the midst of persecution and suffering. At the tail end of our Sermon on the Mount series, we looked a lot at this passage in 1 Peter because in the preceding verses, that's where Peter tells you and I, don't be surprised when the trial comes. Don't think that something weird has happened when you face persecution of one sort or another. It's not strange. It's to be expected. So just don't be surprised when it happens. And then that set of verses ends with, Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. We see emerging this truth that God as creator gives his people security in the midst of persecution and suffering. Psalm 21 is going to give us this big idea. God as creator gives his people unfailing attention and all-encompassing 
protection. God, as creator, gives his people unfailing attention and all-encompassing protection. And what I want to do this morning is just walk through those eight verses in Psalm 21, 121 with you and just have that truth be on display. Because the psalmist's question about where will his help come from is grounded in the truth of who God is as the maker of heaven and earth. So before we go any further, let's pray together, and then we'll hop into God's word and seek to understand it. Father God, thanks for this morning, the opportunity to gather in your name, to sing praises to you, Lord, to reflect on on who it is that you are and and what what it is that you have done in, in Christ. God, as we, as we look at this psalm, would you give us understanding regarding what the psalmist wrote? God, would you give us not just intellectual understanding, but God, would you, would you strengthen our souls this morning as we reflect on these truths that you give your people unfailing attention and all-encompassing protection? God, I think every one of us individually here this morning needs something from you, and I pray that you would meet us in your word, and your spirit would graciously give us what it is that we need. God, collectively as well, those same truths exist that we as a church need to hear from you. So God, give us understanding regarding what it is that you have said Help us to understand more of who you are. And we pray this in Jesus' good name. Amen. Well, the eight verses in Psalm 121 break down roughly in this manner. You have in verse 1 a question posed. In verse 2 you have an answer given. And then the rest of the verses seek to exist and provide the rationale for why that answer can be and is Truthful. So verses 3 to 6 give us a present tense explanation and rationale. Verses 7 and 8 then wrap up and conclude with a promise of continued protection that will ongoingly exist. And so let's go to the psalm. Let's just read all eight verses here together and then we'll go back and we'll unpack it in greater detail after. I lift my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. He will not let your foot be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. The Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade on your right hand. The sun shall not strike you by day nor the moon by night. The Lord will keep you from all evil. He will keep your life. The Lord will keep your going out and your coming in from this time forth and forevermore. Psalm 121 is is a psalm within a collection of psalms called the Psalms of Ascent. And your Bible probably has that heading there, a song of ascent. And what these psalms were, they were songs that were sung 
as the worshipers would travel up to and ascend up to Jerusalem to go worship at the temple. And so there's a collection of them that exist that would have been probably more than likely just sung as individuals were traveling on their way. And so the psalmist is in the midst of this journey and looks up to the hills. And we don't know what the hills had in them. We don't know if the hills had bandits and we don't know if the hills had wild animals. We're not sure if the hills maybe stand metaphorically for unknown territory. We just don't know and we're not given that detail. But we know that he looks up to the hills and he asks the question, where will my help come from? And the word help there is the word and it's defined as supplying what is needed or what will be needed. The psalmist looks up to the hills and for whatever reason the hills stir within his soul, the question that arises is where will I find what I need? We're not even given what exactly his need is. And perhaps that's part of God's grace to us because I think in this room this morning there exists perhaps a different need for each of us as individuals. Some perhaps are much more acute and painful in this moment. Others could be more long-lasting. But there's needs. And the question there is where will the supply for my needs come from? And the psalmist in verse 2 gives us the answer. My help comes from the Lord. The supply for what I need comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. And like we thought about and looked at last week, when the authors of Scripture use those words, heaven and earth, in that way, or the heavens and the earth, in that way, they're using a literary device to say, God has not only created the polar extremes, He has also done everything in the middle. And the psalmist here answers his own question by saying, I worship the God who's made everything. He's going to supply what I need. That's where my help will come from. The idea there is that God has universal and unbounded power. And if he's able to speak into being heaven and earth and everything that has filled them He's able to care for the needs that you and I have. He's able to supply what it is that we are lacking. Now, I personally think that you and I exist at a point in time where we have an immense benefit that no biblical author had. We have science and technology on our side. And that might sound a little counterintuitive because oftentimes we, in this conversation, see science and technology as the arch nemesis to creation and God as creator. And I understand that when you interpret the data from an evolutionary worldview, it it does. It it has contradiction. And it does seem to be the opposing argument. But we also need to just step back and recognize that the things science and technology are providing us as believers are giving us a look into the world that God has created that no one has ever been able to see before. So I want to show you a picture that was taken, and it's a, it's a 
combination of different pictures, obviously. NASA doesn't have one camera capable of taking that picture. What happens is that Hubble, as it does its thing, and then as another satellite called Spitzer does its thing, and just kind of, or telescope, I should say, does its thing, and they orbit around, they take pictures as they're instructed to do, and then that information gets downloaded to computers here in America, and it gets processed, and so all those pictures get stitched together in, let's just call it Photoshop, because I don't know what the exact program would be if it's not, and then what they do, because Hubble and Spitzer are unable to take color photographs, Hubble takes pictures of different wavelengths. So they take pictures of light as it exists in x-ray form or different types of forms, and then the computers give that form a color. And they're able to then blend. And so any picture you see on NASA's website or any picture from the Hubble site is a blend of art and science. It's a real picture, but it's been given to us in this form from scientists who are really good at taking that raw data and applying standardized ways to color and stitch. And so what you have here is the picture known as Able 370. And this picture was just released this past week by NASA because there's an ongoing and just recently beginning campaign for Hubble that as they are now making another pass around, there's instructions that have been given to Hubble to say, I want you to pause there, aim your telescope at that center mass of galaxies and start measuring distances. The Spitzer Telescope is unable to measure distance. Hubble can, and they want to know how far some of those things are away. But what it's given is just some tremendously amazing pictures. In that white box, there exists some 8,000 galaxies. Galaxies that hold trillions of stars. That center mass of, it looks a little bit more red in the very middle. It kind of has a bit of a circular aspect to it at the very top. That's what they really want to try to dive into and learn some things about. And that's what these telescopes are doing in conjunction with one another. But this cluster of nearly 8,000 galaxies is something the human eye can't see. And so when David writes in Psalm 8, when I look at the sun and the moon, which are the work of your fingers... Who, who am I? Who, what is man that you are mindful of him or the son of man that you would care for him? We get to go over to HubbleSite.org and take a peek at 8,000 galaxies. Who am I? My help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. There's another interesting image I want to show you. This one is just an artist's composition of the current swimming and feeding patterns of great white sharks. This was released just a few days ago, actually, and it's, it's been a bit of a puzzling thing that's been going on in the oceanic world. And what happens each year is that great whites leave the warm waters of the coast of California and they swim to this area that you can see heavily concentrated by the, by the blue lines, which is a part of the sea, the ocean, that, that the oceanographers and ocean scientists really know very little about. 
And they don't know why until recently. They just have begun uh, hypothesizing why. They don't know why the sharks kept doing this. But they were tracking these sharks. And they were seeing these sharks come and swim with regularity to this place. And so what they did is they sent a boat from Hawaii over to this place. And they said, we're going to study this. In their hypothesis, and this is just amazing... It was written in the article I read, a boatload of researchers from five scientific institutions visited the middle of nowhere spot between Baja, California, and Hawaii this past spring on a quest to learn more about what draws the big sharks to what has become known as the White Shark Cafe. Now this is part of their hypothesis. Almost as if they were being pulled by some astrological stimulus. I just want to park on that for a moment. Because here you have scientists hypothesizing that astrology is the cause for great whites to, great whites to move over to this part of the ocean. That is not hard science. I mean, that's like we go to the Chinese restaurant and we all look at the little paper placemat to figure out where our birthday is and what animal we are. That, that's that stuff. It is part of their working theory. It's not hard science, but what they end up finding then is that these sharks are diving up to depths of 3,000 feet below seawater, sea level. And then they're coming back up, and, and there's, there's a regular pattern somewhere between 600 feet down and a 1,400 feet down. And the, 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 they're swimming in V-shaped patterns, and they're, they're not real sure if there's a mating aspect to that. But what they found is they began to dig into this is that in that spot exists the largest animal migration on the entire planet that they have found thus far. And it's not a horizontal migration of animals moving out. It's a vertical migration of, plant, or of animal life moving up and down. And so they learned that it looks like this is a fertile feeding place for great whites to come and feast but they tracked these sharks to what now is known as the White Shark Cafe and found the largest animal migration on the planet that they have found thus far. It made me cause me to remember a quote that we saw as we walked into the Baltimore Aquarium this past spring. Only 5% of our oceans have been explored in. And that's from the National Oceanic Atmospheric Association. Our American scientific organization that is devoted to only studying these things is telling us only 5% or just a little less than 5% of the ocean is actually understood. And we get the benefit of these things. Because we get the benefit of science and technology moving forward at, at, at a rate and at a speed that it has never moved forward before. And we can see now 8,000 galaxies in a picture. We can see and get our minds somewhat wrapped around the, the feeding patterns of great white sharks as they move over to the White Shark Cafe. If NASA's ever able to get the James Webb Telescope off the ground and into orbit around the sun, like it's just going to continue and increase and so the psalmist writes, where will my help come from? And he answers this question by saying, my help's going to come from the Lord who made the heavens and the earth. 
And then you and I get to look at images like this, and we get to look at images like this of space, and we get the benefit of seeing and understanding so much more. Well, it's in verses 3 to 6 that the psalmist is going to give the present rationale for why God is unfailing in his attention. And he writes, He will not let your foot be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. That, that word picture of your foot being moved is just an image of one losing their footing. Your foot slipping as perhaps you're climbing and ascending the hill. He's going to give stability to your feet. In the beginning of verse 3, you have a first-person explanation there. The, the pronouns are your and you. He will not let your foot be moved. He will not let or he who keeps you will not slumber. And there's an individual aspect to that. And then it zooms out to the corporate covenant community aspect as well. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. That word keep means to watch or preserve. The Lord keeps you. He's watching over you. He's preserving you, but he's doing the same for the covenant community. Now, not every promise that we see in the Old Testament about Israel can be applied to us today. But this one can because we have these truths reiterated in the New Testament as it relates to God's people. In John 10, Jesus says, my sheep hear my voice and I know them. And they follow me and I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my Father's hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one's able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. If you have your, and placed your faith and trust in Jesus Christ for salvation, you have the promise of eternal life and then the image of you being in the hand of Jesus, which is surrounded by the hand of God the Father, in which we're both told neither hand is able to lose what it is holding. He who keeps you will not slumber because his attention is unfailing. In 2 Thessalonians 3.3, the Apostle Paul says, The Lord is faithful. He will establish you and guard you against the evil one. I look up to the hills. Where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth, who will not let my foot stumble and who will guard and preserve me unfailingly because he never sleeps. Verse 5, the psalmist tells us that the Lord is your keeper. He is the shade, your shade, on your right hand. That idea and that word picture of shade there, I think, is the idea of what happens when, when little kids get frightened and they're right next to mom and dad. And they just, they just do a, a quick duck behind the leg. Or perhaps you're watching a movie together and there's, there's just an intense scene and it's a, it's a duck in to the shoulder with a cover getting brought up. I think that's the idea there of 
shade on your right hand and him as your keeper. That word shade can also be translated as shadow. And that idea of shadow is used elsewhere in places such as Psalm 17.8 where the image is then of birds. Hide me in the shadow of your wings. Of a bird protecting its young by putting its wings over them. God as creator gives his people unfailing attention and all-encompassing protection. In regards to the present protection, the psalmist continues in verse 6, The sun shall not strike you by day, nor the moon by night. I interpret that verse to just be a reference to say, night or day, again, the polar extremes, which can also be then understood as everything else in the middle, God's got it. He's able to protect you through the night and day because he's the one who made the night and day. And he's got you. Because he is unfailing in his attention and all-encompassing in his protection. And lastly, in verses 7 and 8, the psalmist then points his gaze and, by extension, ours forward to what becomes a future promise. The Lord will keep. That word keep, again, meaning and being defined as watching, preserving. The Lord will watch. He will preserve you from all evil. That's what Paul said in 2 Thessalonians 3.3. Guard you against the evil one. The Lord will preserve and watch over you from all evil. He will keep, he will watch, he will preserve your life. The Lord will watch and preserve, he will keep your going out and your coming in from this time forth and forevermore. Because God as creator gives his people unfailing attention and all-encompassing protection. And a big God is really, really good for little people. And the scriptures just continually take our gaze and our focus back to the immensity of who God is how he's other and we can't get our minds wrapped around him, which is also a really good thing. If you and I were able to figure out who God was in every aspect of him, we'd probably have a God made in our image. And that's not to say that we shouldn't continue to study, that we shouldn't continue to learn, that we shouldn't continue to try to understand his word for the rest of our lives. This is not a bury your head in the sand and just go, I can't get him and that's great. But there's something great about not being able to get our minds wrapped around everything he is. Because he's not made in our image. We're made in his. And a big God is really good for little people. And God just is continually taking our focus and our attention back in the midst of the struggle, in the midst of, of persecution, as Peter writes, in the midst of being, of, of being uh, perhaps tempted to not boldly 
share your faith. In the midst of maybe thinking we're a little bit of a bigger deal than we ought to think, God continues to just remind us, no, I made this. And I got this. So I made you and I got you. I will keep you and your foot will not stumble. And my attention is unfailing because I don't ever sleep. And my protection is all-encompassing. And so it will be around the clock. It will be night and day. And it will be for your going out and your coming in. And it will be from this time forth and forevermore. Because God, as creator, gives his people unfailing attention and all-encompassing protection. I don't know what you're facing this morning. I don't know if it's kind of the, the slow gnaw of, of just whatever life circumstances that maybe you, you think will never resolve themselves and how do I reset and find a new normal. I don't know if it's a really recent acute something or other. But this truth is true regardless of where you are. God gives you, if you've placed your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, He gives you unfailing attention and all-encompassing protection. And this, this is the beauty of the gospel. Because Jesus came to do for us what we were unable to do for ourselves He lived the perfect life we are incapable of living. He died the death that we deserved to die. And those that place their faith and trust in Him get to claim this promise. That God is unfailingly attentive to me. And will protect me. There's one other passage I just want to read for you this morning, and I'll do so as the band comes up, and then we'll sing these truths together. It'll probably be a familiar one for you, but it's from Isaiah chapter 40, verses 28 to 31, and Isaiah writes this as he's instructed by God to do so. Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is in an unsearchable. He gives power to the faint. And to him who has no might, he increases strength. Even youths shall faint and be weary. Young men shall fall exhausted. But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. Because our Creator God, 
this everlasting God is unfailing in his attention to his people and is all-encompassing in his protection 